to learn more about your word. Uh, please bless our time together. I ask that you please soften our hearts, soften our hearts to hear you, God, to hear that you have authority over everything that is unstoppable. So please, with that in mind, let's hear it from Pastor Joe. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you, Jen. By the way, uh, Doug, you crushed it on the drums in that last song. That was amazing. That was incredible. That last song was really good. And uh, yes, Jeff plays more than one instrument. We all know that. Do we have to keep bringing it up? We know that he plays a lot of instruments, but uh, he's really good at all of them, too. Um, I'm Joe Davis. I'm the pastor here at Grace Life, in case you're tuning in for the first time. We're, we've just been continuing with our series on the Gospel of Mark. We call it Mark the Evangelist. Uh, we are actually on week 26 of our study of Mark of the Gospel of Mark. And this week, the message is titled, It Is I. <clears throat> So, in the way of introduction, let me just start with a little story. I remember <clears throat> one of the most frightening experiences of my life. As a little boy, I was just joining the Cub Scouts. The very first time, I'd been with them for a couple of weeks, and it happened to be about two weeks before they took their annual summer camping trip. And I was seven years old. I'd been a part of the troop for just a few weeks, and we went on our camping trip, there were about five little cubbies of one I was witch and two troop leaders. And we went deep into the woods, far from the city lights. There was no electricity, nothing like that. And I was excited about the trip, and, and they were excited because they were going to, they'd asked me if I ever done this thing called snipe hunting. And they were excited because I'd never been snipe hunting, and it sounded exciting to me. They were going to take me on this mission, and I started to get excited as they explained it to me because we were going to go snipe hunting, and they say what it is. These are these little birds that walk around on the ground in the middle of the night, and what happens is you get one person to hold a bag while the other people scare the bird with the flashlight into the bag, and you pick them up, and you can cook them. Sounded fun to me. Except what they told me wasn't really what was about to happen. So I'm in the middle of the woods in the darkness, and, and the, I've got the bag, right? Because I'm, I'm the guy with the bag, and they've all got their flashlights, and, and they're ready. Okay, Joe, you ready? We're going to go over here, and we're going to turn our flashlights off, and then we're going to scare the snipe into this clearing, and you're going to bag them up. So they did, and they went into the woods, and they turned their flashlights off. Fifteen seconds 30 seconds, a minute, five minutes. I think I was there for seven days. Well, it felt like seven days. It's more like 10 minutes. Imagine my abject horror. They're all disappeared. No flashlights. They've left this poor little Cub Scout, Joey, alone in the pitch dark holding a bag. I had no idea where I was. No idea how to get out of it. And I start screaming in total abject horror. So loud that they were forced to abandon the perfectly played prank. I remember my Cub Scout master says, Joey, Joey, it's okay. It was just a joke. But where am I? Don't worry about it. Follow my voice. And trust me, at that moment... I didn't hear anything else but that guy's voice. I wanted to hear nothing else. So that is my story of abject fear. With that in mind, we're going to read the passage from Mark chapter 6, 
45 to 52. Remember last week we had just finished a story where he fed uh, the crowd of about 25,000. Let me read this. Immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, where he dismissed the crowd, while he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up to the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land. And they saw, and he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And then about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them, but when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost or a demon, and cried out in fear, for they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke and said, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased, and they were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. All right, we're going to look at uh, the three applications of this passage like we always do. The first is the history. What about man? What did he do and why and how did he do it? I've entitled this section The Wrong Idea. And so uh, the first point I want to make is this idea of King Jesus. So politically, remember this crowd we were talking about last week, politically, economically, it's a very disillusioned group of people. They see Jesus as a way out of their pitiful lives. He can heal them. He can feed them, he can lead them, and they want to follow him, and they want to make him their king. Sounds good, right? The problem is it wasn't a spiritual awakening for them. What they see is a king that will meet their earthly needs. They see what they think could be a benevolent dictator who will provide for them their every need just like he did with them and the bread and the fish just a few hours earlier. I can see why, can't you? I mean, they were hungry and he feeds them, miraculously. And they see Jesus now as this potential endless gravy train. And they think if he could just control the government, we'd be all set. They just wanted the things that Jesus could provide for them. It's kind of the same as we see out of the prosperity gospel crowd today. People that say they're following Jesus because they're promised some sort of rewards or wealth or riches. I don't see it any differently. So that evening, there starts to brew this plan to take Jesus by force and make him king. By force. They want to take him and force him to be their king. And so this is an example of the constant frustration that Jesus has with humans his whole time he's doing ministry on the earth. And we see in the last verse of the story in uh, the Gospel of Mark that we're reading today that even the disciples didn't really understand about the loaves. Why does he put that there about a story about Jesus walking on the water? Well, here's why. Because throughout Jesus' ministry, this is a constant frustration he has with people who are unable to see who he really is starting with his mom in the beginning, the disciples, the crowds. Remember doubting Thomas even after the resurrection? It is a recurring theme throughout his earthly ministry that people see him and they respect him and they love him and they believe in him, but they don't know who he really is. I mean, during this incredible miracle of the feeding of the 5,000, they still don't see that he's not just Messiah, 
He is actually Jehovah. And it's not that they didn't believe in Jesus when it says the scripture says their hearts were hardened because they didn't understand about the loaves. It's, it's not that they didn't believe in Jesus, but they had been so culturally conditioned about what Messiah could or should be, they had no idea of what God's Messiah was really supposed to be. Their political, their cultural confirmation bias has blinded them to the truth. Even after all these incredible miracles, they don't see him as Jehovah. They see him as Messiah, a leader, a ruler. So Jesus sees the problem, and he knows he must disperse this dangerous crowd that wants to force him to be king. He's got to do it immediately. And he gives strict orders to the disciples. In the, he, in the Greek language, it kind of makes it clear. He immediately tells them, right now, get in the boat. It's not like, maybe we should, you guys should leave. No, he gives them direct command immediately. Get in the boat. Go to Bethsaida. I'll meet you there later. Go. Get out. Then once they're gone, the scripture says he miraculously basically says, crowd, get out of here. And the crowd disperses for the night. They go back into the hillsides. And then Jesus, probably the height of frustration, goes alone to the mountain to pray. Now let's shift over to another scene to the disciples who are in this boat again. So the voyage would be about four miles and right along the shore. It's not like they're going across the lake or the Sea of Galilee. It's just a little jaunt up the shore to Bethsaida. It's an easy trip, no big deal, 45 minutes at the most. But what was supposed to be a short sail around the bend has turned into potential great tragedy. The winds kind of pick up. And they get so strong, these seasoned, skilled, experienced fishermen who know how to use a boat cannot steer. And this short trip turns into a night of boating terror. Like I said, keeping in mind, at least seven of the 12 were experienced. They weren't novices. And they're sitting in this boat from dinner until late in the night into the early morning, rowing for hours as the wind howls so hard, they can't even get back to shore, let alone their original destination of Bethsaida. And the scripture says they're being pushed further out. They're in the middle of the Sea of Galilee, probably roughly four miles from shore. This is the second time these guys have been caught in a boat in a storm. But this time, Jesus, they think, is nowhere in sight. So that's the history of the passage. You get a sense of what's going on now. Let's look at the spiritual. What about God? What did he do? And why and how did he do it? <clears throat> so the first point I want to bring up, I've named with you always. Some of you might recognize that phrase from the Great Commission. We'll get to that in a moment. So Jesus is watching, the scripture says, from shore, probably for hours, as the disciples battle the winds to no avail, stuck in the middle of the Sea of Galilee. Now, think about this. Don't, don't let this, this reality escape your mind. He sees them from a mountain, from miles away, in pitch dark, in a storm. This isn't human sight that he's seeing them with. This is supernatural, sovereign, omnipresent sight. It's almost like he is there which we will learn later on he actually was. So understand, he's on the land, 
on a mountain. They're at least four miles away from the shore in the middle of the night. So total probably distance between him and the disciples is probably six miles, four, uh, five to six miles pitch dark. Is he there physically? No. He is there in sovereign power and knowledge, fully aware and in control from the mountain. It's just like later, as I mentioned, in the Great Commission, when he told the disciples, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. It's the same concept. He is in complete control, total control, ever-present, even though his disciples can't see it. And then he instantly, he doesn't start walking, I don't think, because it's five to six miles, it would take a while, two hours. He instantly traverses several miles from the mountain to the lake to the boat, walking on raging waves. That's quite a sight. But it's an example of how Jesus will do whatever it takes to be with us always. And these guys, they see this right there. They're in this boat for hours. And, and by the way, just so you know, 3 a.m. to 6 a.m. is the fourth watch. It says on the fourth watch he walked by their boat. That's 3 a.m. So you understand how long it's been. This is not like 11 o'clock at night. They left after dinner, and now it's almost the next day, and they're still rowing. They're tired. They're exhausted. The waves are crashing. The wind is howling. They're way off course. They're stressed, full of anxiety. And then suddenly, on top of all of that, they see someone walking across the waves. And the scripture says they scream in abject fear. They think it's a demon, an evil spirit. And a popular belief in those days was that at night is when evil spirits would come out to bring calamity. So combined with the waves and the wind, this is a terrifying sight. This could be, for these men, the most frightening experience they've ever had in their lives. Surely this storm is more than just wind. Surely this is evil come to destroy us, to take our lives. Jesus, where are you? What conclusion would you come to in this situation? Total darkness, a boat in a storm, and someone walking across the raging waves. What would you think? Quick, get the phone out. I want to record this on Insta. Is that what you think? I think you'd be screaming in fear too. But then we have one of the most amazing set of words that is uttered in the New Testament. The most underrated, I think, verse in the whole Bible. It is I. Jesus hears the screams. He knows they're in terror. And he speaks these amazing words. He says, take heart. It is I. Do not be afraid. So I need to break this down for you. We might spend a little bit more time here on the theological or spiritual side than we normally do because this is very, very important. The first Greek word I want to teach you is this word ego, ego. We get the word ego from it in English. It is a primary pronoun. It is used in this construction as an emphatic first-person pronoun. In other words, it's for emphasis. It's, look, I, me, I. No, 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 not you, me. So he's being emphatic. He wants people to know, take heart, 
I am I, me. He's saying, look at me, this is important. There's no doubt of the identification in the way he uses this word. The second word is imi. A first person, singular, present indicative. I'll get to that, what it means in a minute. And basically, it is a prolonged, timeless form of a primary verb. I exist, I have been. Here's what he is saying. It is the phrase God used to refer to himself, and every Jew would know, because it was used with Moses in the burning bush. When God appeared to him to reveal his plan to call his people out of Egypt, he said in Exodus 3.14, God said to Moses, I am who I am. It is the same language, the same words. I am who I am, he said. Say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent you to me. Matter of fact, Jesus used this same phrase, ego, me. Remember, those are the two words, ego, me. I am, it is I. He used the same words. That's when God used them in Exodus. Jesus uses them in John later on when he's in Jerusalem. Jesus says to them, truly, truly, I say to you before Abraham was, I am. And their response, so they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Why do you think they picked up stones to throw? Because they knew what he was saying. Every Jew would know what I am means. It's evidenced by the fact that they tried to kill him. So this isn't some obscure, offhand phrase that he's using. It's a well-known, specific, and audacious claim. Every Every Jew knew what I am meant, And for us, it would be like this. And if you're sitting at home, finish this phrase for me. Merry, I hope you said Christmas, or Happy New Year. Phrases you know. And if somebody said Merry, you'd probably be able to finish it for them. Merry Christmas. That is how familiar Jews would be with I am when it comes to a name for God. It is I. I am. Before Abraham was, I am. Everybody knows this phrase. And the original language of what Jesus says, when he says, take heart, it allows us to infer a specific feeling of frustration in Jesus' tone as he uses this moment to drive home a truth for them. Take heart isn't to be translated, it's okay, boys, daddy's here now. No, it's, it's more like this. Take heart means, guys, get a grip, buck up, enough, stop. You can see the frustration as Jesus says, guys, stop being babies, it is I. That's what's really going on here. And he uses this moment of their total fear to bring them to a place where they are forced to see and hear who he really is. Is. And Jesus speaks these audacious words, he calms the winds, and they begin to grasp he's not just Messiah, he is Jehovah. And that's why Mark says they were astounded or they were amazed. It wasn't because of the walking on the water or the winds calming. They have seen Jesus do miracles before. As a matter of fact, they've seen him calm a storm before. 
That's nothing new. Miracles were nothing new. No, what astounded them was this new phrase that he was using in conjunction with the miracles that is forcing them to deal with the reality of who this guy really is. For the first time, I think they may have been thinking, if you will allow me to put it in modern terms, oh my God, it's God. Oh my God, it's God. Whoa, what is happening here in this boat? And fear, abject panic, has birthed a teachable moment. It just got real for them. And now it becomes a binary choice when it comes to following Jesus. He's either God or he's a lunatic. And you're going to have to pick a side. And in John, the Gospel of John, we learn that later that same day, after that fourth watch battle on the, on the seas with the wind and everything, later that day, Jesus continues to teach them further. And he says, not only am I Jehovah, I'm going to have to die soon. And on the third day, I will be resurrected. This is like big time learning day for them. Okay, so that's the theolo theological section or the spiritual section. I know it was long. Let's look at the personal. What about us? What are we supposed to do and why and how do we do it? I want to boil this down to fear, frustration, and love. <clears throat> These are the things that stick out to me in the personal section of today's passage. And let's look at them just a little bit closer, if we will. I want to talk about fear first. This was my Sunday sermon preview this week. Without supernatural intervention from Jesus, our worst fears will all ultimately come to pass. And that is true if you think about it. Because this teachable moment is effective for the disciples because fear puts eternity in the sights for these mortal men. I mean, Jesus has been trying to tell them what, frankly, at this point really should be quite obvious, that he's God. But they haven't quite grasped it yet. <clears throat> And John the Elder does a great job. He's one of the guys that would have been there, right? He actually does a great job defining for us what fear is. I love this verse. <clears throat> there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. And here it is. Here, here's what fear is. In the end, bottom line, all fear is rooted in this. For fear has to do with punishment. And whoever fears has not been perfected in love. Punishment. Judgment. What all moments of terror have in common is that they all have the ultimate fear of being isolated, alone, carried out to their fullest extent in darkness forever. That's the end result of all fear. <clears throat> That's what fear is. It's the horror of permanent consequences, permanent loss or circumstances you may never recover from. It's beyond dying, although dying can be part of fear. It's eternal in its perspective. Circumstances beyond your control. And as with the disciples, I believe fear can be the push we often need to get off the fence when it comes to who Jesus is. It can bring you to a place where you are forced to either trust Jesus or reject him. <clears throat> Frankly, I see fear is the closest thing we can get 
to shedding the spiritual blinders of life on earth. Frankly, if you think about it, fear is quite a rational state of mind if you've never experienced the perfect love of the sovereign, relentless Jehovah. So that's the fear part of what I see in this. Now I want to look at the next part, which is the frustration part. (coughs) Excuse me. You can see why Jesus was frustrated with the disciples, right? Why he would often be frustrated with us, even today. We're no better than the disciples. Many of us, figuratively speaking, are in the same boat, if you will. We are walking in fear of many things even today, these days. And it's not just the virus, if we're honest. What we're really concerned about is all the many impacts the virus might have on our lives going forward. Will life ever be the same? What's going to be different? Are we going to go into a Great Depression in the economy? We don't know. Am I going to get my job back? Will my family be okay? Will I I be infected? There's a lot of ways this is impacting our lives, and it's okay to admit there's some anxiety. But on a bigger picture, how frustrating is it, and how frustrating must it be for Jesus when the church, even us, we don't get it about who he is, yet he relentlessly comes for us anyway, time after time. Just like the disciples, when it comes to who Jesus really is in our life, most of us are sitting on the fence. Look, they were following Jesus. They were identifying with Jesus. But they were on the fence. I mean, like the disciples, many of us in church, we believe in him. We even identify with him. We might even wear a shirt that says Jesus on it. But... Just because you have a shirt with the name Jesus doesn't mean you're not sitting on the fence. You readily admit Jesus is very special in your life, like they did. But I don't think many of us actually see him as for who he really is, which is Jehovah. Or if we did, if we really understood what I am means or it is I means, we would live in complete full surrender. But we don't. For many of you, Jesus is just your higher power, powerful friend, or maybe some sort of spiritual assistant. We expect him to pick up the phone when we call. Jesus, I need you to provide this thing, or I need you to get me out of this mess or heal me through this addiction or sickness, or help me with this pain, whatever it is, he's our assistant. He needs to provide for us. Some of us, and I know that you don't think of him as Jehovah, because here's what you do. Some of us have the audacity to bargain with Jesus. Give me this, or get me out of that, and I promise I will. That's not how we talk to Jehovah. But when he calls us to surrender our life in service with everything we have, to serve him fully, to give up things you know in your life, don't honor him, relationships, love of money, things like that that clearly are not making Jesus smile, 
we send him straight to voicemail. I think if we really thought he was Jehovah, we would answer, wouldn't we? So that's the first two, fear, frustration. Now let's talk about love. Proverbs chapter 9, verse 10. Let me put this verse up. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. The word Lord in capitals means Jehovah. Holy One is another name for Jehovah. The fear of the Lord is the beginning. The fear of Jehovah is the beginning of wisdom, and knowledge of Jehovah is insight. See, even though how we interact with our Savior, even as Christians, right, it must be frustrating to Jesus like it was for his disciples. We're no better than them. He still displays this infinitely patient, sovereign love. I mean, do you have a full, never-ending concept of what it is I should mean for you? What I am should mean, what I have been, no beginning, no ending, before Abraham was, I am. Stop being fearful, I am, it is I, I have been here, me, personally, right here, I am here, I was here, I will be here. I was here before the boat got here, is what he's saying. And just with the disciples, he is always there with us like he said in the Great Commission, reminding us repeatedly, repeatedly, hey, I'm Jehovah. You were, do- you were good. You remembered it on Monday, Tuesday. Wednesday, you kind of forgot. Friday, you really forgot. After six, Sunday morning, you're remembering again. That's good. And he's constantly there, pulling us back. I'm so thankful that as frustrating as I can be for Jesus, for my Jesus, Man, he just patiently, relentlessly continues to walk across the raging waves to meet me where I am and say, hey, Joe, buck up. It is I. And in one shot, he casts out fear and uses these moments to give me knowledge of the Holy One. And it is in those moments of clarity when he helps us to grasp what I am or it is I means for us. And for Jesus to remind us, it's just a never-ending job. It's part of our daily salvation. It's amazing, relentless, patient, sovereign love that brings us to realization that he is not just Messiah, church. He's not just Jesus. He is, in fact, it is I. I am Jehovah. And once we begin to grasp and tap into the phrase, it is I, what does it mean for us? Well, if we really get it, it should probably force us to make some pretty drastic changes, shouldn't it? Heavenly Dad, we confess to you that we are constantly wandering. We are prone to wander. 
And while we always have love and respect and appreciate all that you do, there are many times that we just forget that you are I am, that you are it is I, that you are Jehovah. And it is evidenced by the fact that how we bargain with you, how we use you as a spiritual assistant, and how we do a very good job of cordoning off what we're really willing to surrender. Because if we really knew that you were Jehovah, it would all be yours all the time. But nevertheless, we are such painfully flawed humans. It is another reason why we need our great shepherd so much to keep us from wandering from Jehovah. As we go through all the things that we are in our life right now with this lockdown and this quarantine and all those things, and and it's okay for us to realize there's some fear and anxiety of permanent consequences from all of that. Please, Jesus, with your voice, please keep reminding us, buck up. It is I. Before Abraham was, I am. Without beginning, without end. Just, (laughs) Jesus, I know it's annoying, But please, please keep reminding us. In Jesus' name, amen. Church, we love you. Uh, I just got to tell you one more thing, and I'll be sending an email about this later this week. But I am so encouraged with how our church continues to grow together spiritually. Uh, I'm amazed that, you know, all the Bible study groups that we have continue to meet through Zoom, uh, and they're connecting with one another. I... I, I, uh, crashed in on a few of them through Zoom this week, and it was great to see your faces. We miss you terribly, but I just feel like this has been a really, while it's hard to do this to an empty room, right, as the band and everything, it's really kind of strange. I just have this sense that our church is really growing spiritually right now, and I'm just so encouraged by it, and so I want you to keep up. Uh, I don't know when this marathon will end, but it will, and we'll be back together again very soon. We love you. Thank you so much. If you need anything Let us know once again because we've got your back. Thank you, guys. Have a good week. We'll see you Friday for Grace Life TV, Episode 4. All right.